This is a podcast from Rover. All right, on the programme today, Professor Hugh Campbell. We always enjoy having a catch-up with this bloke. He's just been over to Norway as well, the Professor of Sociology at Otago University. Good to talk to you again, Hugh. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks, Dom. Uh, interesting to be back in New Zealand. I was away for nine weeks, and uh, you know, much happens in nine weeks, but also not much changes. Yeah, exactly. It's a very good observation. So uh, you were in Norway primarily. Yeah, I I have a position at the University of Norway that I tried, well, prior to COVID, I used to try to get to quite regularly. But I also had the chance to uh, visit uh, the Netherlands, uh, one of the big agricultural universities there, the University of Wageningen. So, yeah, interesting to get over into Europe and sort of check in with colleagues and other research projects that what's happening in the Netherlands and in Norway, because... Uh, well, some of it's quite similar to what's happening here and some of it's dramatically different. Well, interesting you mentioned the Netherlands there because, of course, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the fact that that uh, farmer-citizen movement uh, party, I think they call it the Triple B Party, um, yeah. have, uh, well, geez, they smashed it in the last election pretty much, didn't they? And uh, I think they've got yeah. some really good representation in the uh, the, the Danish, uh, sorry, not the Danish, the, uh, the Dutch government. Yes, that's right. They are... They were at a really fascinating phase in the Netherlands in terms of their rural politics because, and there's, you know, spoiler alert, there seems to be quite a lot of similarity and influence running from the Netherlands out to New Zealand with groundswell at the moment. It's a lot of the sloganeering is very similar and uh, some of the key issues are extremely, extremely familiar. Uh, but what the Netherlands are running a little ahead of us um, because... Uh, you know, they've moved from the tractor protests, and, and I've got to say that uh, some of the rural defence league protests that have been happening in the Netherlands by farmers on tractors there uh, make, make ours look really quite moderate <laughs> and considered by uh, comparison. Right. But now, now they're using their proportional representation system to create an actual farmer party, and it's it's more than a farmer party because they do have very strong farmer political representation in the Dutch Parliament, but it's one charismatic person um, leading a quite radical right, I'd say, I was going to say right-leaning, but they're not right-leaning, they are outright right. Right. Uh, <laughs> anti-government farmer party, the BBB. Mm. Yes, interesting. So when that was uh, becoming apparent in the news cycle, um, whenever it was a few months ago, um, and even earlier than that, I did sort of think, yeah, there are some similarities. I think I mentioned it at the time um, with with yeah. New Zealand, uh, but um, it yep. seems like a long way for a like as you mentioned the groundswell or something like that uh, to embark on a, a similar path. It seems like there'd yeah. be a lot of work to do. In in that regard, if they were to, you know, mirror something that's happening in the Netherlands, well, so if you, if I'm not, I'm not entirely sure whether we end up in exactly the same place uh, in terms of political direction, but we certainly, they certainly started in a similar place. So, I mean, to give to give some of the historical background, uh, the European Union passed what was called the Nitrate Directive uh, over 20 years ago, and around 20 years ago, in which basically set a cap on nitrogen in farming systems very much like what's being debated in Canterbury at the moment in mm. New Zealand. And uh, the Dutch government, under pressure from farm lobbies, really dragged its heels for years. Uh, and it's 
you know, it would be very surprising to hear of uh, farmer politicians dragging their heels on environmental regulation for blood. Uh, and a group of NGOs, actually, uh, environmental activist organisations, slowly pursued the Dutch government through the courts. And after a long, long series of, of uh, court disputes, finally forced the Dutch government to have to come formally into compliance with the nitrate directive. So it was only comparatively recently the Dutch government began a series of schemes to try and limit nitrogen use in Dutch farming. And this is what triggered the rise of the Royal Defence League. Um, the, because, I mean, we, we may see some areas of major concern around nitrogen and freshwater in New Zealand, but compared to the Netherlands, that is a serious, serious issue for them. They're a small, very compressed country. They're a massive agricultural production and exporting country. I think second only after New Zealand in terms of the proportion of agricultural product that goes offshore. And they, their farming system relies on nitrogen. Right. Bottom. Yeah. And so the reaction has been, uh, yeah, much more, even more extreme than here. Uh, they, they really have. It's polarised the science community, um, and so yeah, it, it all kicked out. It all kicked off around nitrogen. Well, it's interesting. So my thought around that, Hugh, was uh, in terms of how they managed to get. Obviously, they had the you know the farming fraternity, as it were. Uh, that's an easy sell to them. But what mm. about the people that? Because you obviously need more. Uh, support than just that. So how did they get the average citizen, the urban dweller, so to speak, because uh, I have watched some videos on this and they certainly did capture some of them, uh, you know, to buy into that and actually cast their vote in favour of this, um, what is a, effectively a, uh, you know, a farmer movement party? Yeah, well, I think, uh, interesting, uh, we'll reflect in a second on how this looks in terms of our, our election, but the the, the party, the BBB, really has cast itself as um, an anti-government party, um, and they're not they're not quite at kind of voices for freedom level, but they definitely are, you know, a party that that is saying, you know, that, that what has happened, what we are we, we are victims of massive state overreach, right? Um, and I, I do feel well. I feel sorry for the Dutch government. They dragged their heels for so many decades on this one, and they've been dragged kicking and screaming into it mm. very reluctantly. So they they really haven't been monstrously proactive villains in this regard in the eyes of farmers. But no, they are the target that's there and available. And so I think in the Netherlands, you, you have the same kind of post-COVID um, itching anti-government, slightly resentful sentiment out there amongst a lot of voters, which... Uh, of course, you're probably seeing a little bit here as well. Well, I think it's global. I think there's a, uh, well, global, maybe Western, I'm not mm. sure, um, a massive mistrust of, uh, I guess, institutions as they stand yeah. at the moment, whether that be, you know, at a university or government or yeah. Uh, yeah. whatever sort of state-owned thing um, you, that you might come up with. Uh, the lack of trust and confidence in institutions is at an all-time low, I'd suggest. And uh, there are, I mean, it's the same thing 
you see in American politics where, you know, you have the choice with a... Uh, this is why a lot of people think that Trump did very well, because he was effectively anti-establishment. It's why uh, people like RFK Jr. and Vivek Ramaswamy and people like that are getting, uh, you know, significant airtime, as it were, because they yeah. are anti-establishment. That's right. And... Um I think if, in terms of specifically rural protests, the interesting comparative case to the Netherlands is Norway, where they've also had a, uh, a, a regional rebellion um, that sort of didn't make it much into the English language media, but it's been a big deal in Norway. Um, and it's, a, it's very much an anti-government uh, protest, but <laughs> here's the really interesting difference. It's come from the centre and the centre-left, Oh, wow, it was, okay. It was protesting against this, well, by Norway's standards, a slightly right-wing government, but by world standards, it's still a left-wing government. But it, it was, the, the, the government in Norway um, sort of under, sort of associated with various COVID measures and the like, had gone through a process of announcing a major restructuring of their health system. Uh, sounds very familiar. And, they, <laughs> yeah. and, and the, the sort of the, the pointy end of what was turning into a massive sort of regional centralisation of healthcare systems is they began announcing scheduled closures of maternity clinics around rural Norway. Uh, this was, and this became the flashpoint issue. And so this massive rural uprising led by women in rural Norway began marching in the streets. They began putting on the, the, the famous Norwegian peasant outfit, the Boonet, uh, called, so it's called the Boonet Revolution. And uh, they really gave the government a huge amount of grief uh, and it's 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 this absolute. It's it's quite couched in anti-government terms. It's like you shall not centralise. Right. You know, you you will not abandon us. We we have rights to these services. And I thought it was just a fascinating comparison uh, with what's happening elsewhere because it's the politics underneath it, and, sp- and the specific politics underneath it is slightly different. But it's that same post-COVID kind of. We really hate on government at the moment. Yeah, and that's what it seems to be. It's you're right. It's post COVID. I think as the dust has settled on all of that stuff and the lockdowns and uh, the borders closing and all these sorts of things, um, I think people are now right. You know, sort of um, largely resentful. Uh, certainly, large pockets of societies around the globe are resentful of what they had to go through. I think to a large degree. Yeah, and a whole lot of. I mean, I think. Um you know, even if you just reflect on your own personal experience of these things, you know, many things that were just stable certainties in our life got really, really deeply disrupted. Mm. And I think one of the other policy discussions I was participating in, which was not rural, well, not specifically rural at all, was with a group of public health experts uh, in different countries. I, I was only, I wasn't participating, I was just listening in on these things. Mm. You know, and they were reflecting on what they would have done differently. Um, had they had a second chance at doing COVID. And they, they would have done a lot of the same things that, that, that actually transpired, but the thing they would have done very differently, I saw this almost universally across public health discussions, was they wouldn't have shut schools down. Right, yes. And, and it was the shutting down of schools that took the lockdown for a lot of households from being this kind of public health adventure mm. for the nation into massively horrifically disruptive for everyday life and you know if, if this you know where this impinges on my life at the moment is that you know I'm, I'm involved in undergraduate university teaching of course and we're now getting the kids coming through who had three years of this 
Yes. Uh, or two two years of this, and you can really see in our in our intake. Well, I can, I really feel like we can see in our intake at the moment. This is a group of kids who had their schooling compromised, um, and was you know, and you can see with public health people and politicians, it's going like this is what we would have done differently. You know, we would have done the schooling thing differently because, and so you, you know, we, we, you've got so many hundreds of thousands of households in New Zealand. This could be an underestimate, you know, whose lives are absolutely turned upside down by that one single measure, mm. and, and that's now, I think, manifesting in terms of our policy. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, and of course, the ramifications of that, uh, you know, in years to come as well. Uh, there's been yeah, speculation yeah, on what absolutely. that will do, and you I mean you're at the coalface yeah. in terms of tertiary education, so you can see it uh, yeah. firsthand. And what 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 are you noticing in regard to that, uh, Hugh? I mean, is it uh, is it marked? Is it subtle? Is it uh, you know what sort of areas are we looking at that have been compromised, as it were? Yeah, well, we. I mean, I I think you know. This would not be the first mention of this in any kind of public discussion, but you know we we have a mental health epidemic through uh, younger people at the moment. Yeah, and what you really see at university at the moment is a, is a lot of students coming in who are, who are not merely just anxious arriving at university, but are really struggling with anxiety disorders, mm. and to a much greater degree. So you know, in my role as as an undergraduate. Uh, course coordinator, you know, you're, you're dealing with managing a group of extremely stressed out uh, learners. But the other thing they've, that students have lost is they've lost a lot of the kind of in-classroom work habit and practice skills. Right. And, you know, sometimes, you know, in, in, the, in the normal course of things, we can tend to look at our secondary schooling and go, oh, I think it can be a bit average at times. But actually, compared with what's happened in the last two years, I think in hindsight, they've been doing a damn good job of actually settling students and getting them into practices and good skills of learning and, uh, you know, learning and, and analytical reflection, which this, you know, sitting at home learning online didn't do. Mm. Um, yes, exactly. There's think, limitations to that. Yeah, there, there really are. Yeah. Look, Don, we got well, we got well off track from a trip to Norway, didn't we? Well, we uh, did, but you know, I quite like. But it's an interesting observation that, that that you've raised in relation to that. And you know, I mean, it all is related in some way, shape, or form. It just depends on which way you pull the, uh, you know, you, you yeah, tug at the strings, yeah. I suppose. But um, okay, in relation to Norway, you were talking about the fact that there was this uh, uprising of rural women, so yes. to speak. So I haven't really. I, this is this is news. To me, I haven't really yeah, well, uh, yeah, caught up with this. Well. Yeah. yeah, no, it, it hasn't really carried in the um, in the English language uh, literature. So I, I thought there was, I mean, Norway for this to happen in Norway is really quite a remarkable thing because you know one of the things we talk about in terms of rural New Zealand and, and farming in New Zealand is this concept of the social license to farm and mm. are we losing it? Um, <clears throat> and what I always think that the control case for me of that is Norway. Okay. Uh, because they, the the level of social consent for farming in Norway is just astonishingly high. Uh, every year, the government uh, negotiates uh, with the farming union and organisations what the annual subsidy will be from government, and the subsidy pays for, I think, in some systems around seventy percent of their income. And farming farming cannot exist in the Norwegian landscape without very, very significant subsidy. Right. Uh, but each year they sit down with the government and the opinion polls are done and well over 75% of the Norwegian citizenry are totally happy for the subsidy to happen. Okay. So, because they, they see farming as 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of research done, particularly by uh, the places that I spend time at in Norway. There's a lot of research on why is farming so deeply loved in Norway. Uh, it's not a huge contributor to their, or not even remotely a huge contributor to their GDP. You know, the average dairy herd size is somewhere between 17 and 21 cows. <laughs> right, yeah. But, but it is a really beloved sector. And part of the reason is Norwegians have this, uh, what's iconic within Norwegian uh, society and policy is this idea of the landscape and what their landscape looks like. They're incredibly bonded to this very, very beautiful landscape. But for them, hills that just have trees on them uh, are not attractive. They're not as attractive as hills which have these lovely, beautiful little farms dotted through them. Right. And for them, if they, in the, and of course they're up in the boreal forest there in Norway, if you, if you take the farming management out of that landscape, come back in 10 years and the trees will have engulfed it mm-hmm. and it will be gone. Yes, yeah, so, so it, land management, uh, yeah, which is, which is a familiar, uh, you know, familiar aspect, and, yeah. Yeah, and so the, really the key selling point uh, that Norwegian farmers have and they don't have to sell it too hard, is this idea that they are the stewards and guardians of a beautiful landscape. And and Norwegian citizens love them for what they do to the landscape. Wow, okay. And, so that, and that's the message I really brought back here, which is that, I mean, when I think of, um, you know, if I was taking my students on a field trip and we were going to visit you know, farms that I know that I was going to say, this is, this is really good stuff happening in New Zealand, you can almost universally get off the minivan at the gates of some of those farms and look and go, this is a beautiful landscape. Mm. Like this is, a, this is good farming done in a way that makes, that you just know that this is a, a beautiful way to manage this land. And the, the stuff that really gets the visceral reaction uh, in wider New Zealand uh, publics is really those you know, internet photographs of cows up to their bellies and mud and things like that, which is clearly just a production landscape that looks horrible. Right, yes, but yes. But making money. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that's the, that's the Norwegian lesson for me, is that obviously <laughs> there's, there's no way in which we want to have 70% of our farming provided by the taxpayer, but it's that sense in which this is why Norwegians love their farms and their farmers, is, is that they just see them as this integral part of a beautiful productive landscape uh, in Norway. Right, so custodians of the land almost. Yeah, Yeah. okay, that's very interesting. So, yeah, obviously there's similarities and yet stark differences to the examples here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, the the difference in similarity, I think, is most, uh, the one I point to is most contrasting is that uh, over 90% of uh, Norwegian dairy production goes through one cooperative called Tina. Right. And uh, so, like New Zealand, uh, it's just that Tina exports almost none of its products. Uh, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. So they do have a they do have a very very centralised cooperative dairy structure, quite big, powerful farm lobby, but all entirely focused on the domestic market. Oh, okay, that's a very important distinction, then, isn't it? Uh, Whereas, uh, you know, as it turns yeah. out, as it turns out, yeah, ninety percent of ours goes uh, goes offshore, and of course, uh, I guess the size of farms is another thing, and we're seeing more and more in New Zealand now, I suppose, as the um, the family farm comes under, you know, some sort of threat, as it's been doing for a little while. More uh, well, corporatisation of uh, of farming uh, over yeah, here. Yeah, that that really can't happen in Norway um, for. Uh, very specific reasons in terms of uh, land ownership and land title. I mean, we're a colonised country that imported British notions of title and and land deeds and real estate. So we are are one of the most privately transactable 
bodies of farmland in the entire Western world. Mm. Whereas, you know, countries like Norway or, or France and the like, you know, which evolved out of peasant farming and a whole lot of customary rights, it, it, it just translates differently into your land market. So in Norway, you cannot, you, you're allowed, to, there are certain areas, very high value tourist areas, where farmers are allowed to subdivide tiny amounts of their land off to allow other people to build cabins. Right, right. Other than that, if you're a dairy farm, you can only sell to a dairy farm. Okay. So the, in Norwegian terms, the land is almost worthless. Interesting. So there's a almost collective, cooperative sort of uh, mindset, almost a sort of a, it's almost like socialist farming to a point, or certainly more socialist than uh, than, than than what you'd have uh, a, a more capitalist model that would that we operate under here. It's, yeah, you, you. It's like farming to me. So people talk about Norway as being a social democratic society. Uh, and I think nothing exhibits that more than farming. They yeah. really have a social democratic system of farming because no one goes into farming to make money in Norway. Uh, they, they, they all do it because of family, because of lifestyle, because of a particular bond to a piece of land, because um, you are not going to get rich farming. But Norway is a generally very wealthy society. means no one's also going to be particularly poor. Right. Um, but the, the difference it makes to farming when... You cannot sell your land to make a large profit. Uh, it is dramatic. Yeah. Uh, and, and the compensation you because I mean, if you could sell farmland on the open market, uh, come back in 10 years and every single farm in a certain part of Norway will be bought by German tourists. Yeah. Uh, because they love it. You yeah. Know, this is, and they'll be hunting there and they'll be salmon fishing and all that. The only thing these actually is, is <laughs> I won't reveal too much of what exactly I was doing over there, John, but, you know, some of these farms, one of the key assets they have is rights, is fishing rights to a river. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, those, are, those are carefully protected. Yeah. So then if, if the uh, system works the way it does, what was it that got people riled up in terms of the, uh, the, the rural women uh, in, in, in Norway? What was the impetus behind that? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think for, they had a huge amount of support from urban Norway. Um, and it was it was the idea of we, we have this relationship and this set of political arrangements in the countryside. Don't mess with it. Right. So okay, uh, and, I see. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like so the idea of you know of pulling resources out of rural Norway is is actually abhorrent across the whole of Norwegian society. Uh, and so the government got its wings clipped very firmly. I mean, the government was trying to deal with what every government in the world trying to deal with, which is that. You know, healthcare costs are constantly escalating on a year-by-year basis, no matter what you do in anything. Mm. Uh, you know, and you've got to pay for that somehow. And <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether we're seeing any particular parties going into government at the moment who are providing convincing explanations to how they're going to pay for our healthcare needs in the near future. But in Norway, well, the way they did it was by uh, centralising, which does sound familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it does, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, that's very interesting then. So what you've got there is a uh, farming way of life that the people want to see protected because it's valued. And uh, it'd be an interesting exercise over here in terms of, yeah, the value that people place on farming. You, see, you saw it in yeah. COVID where, um, you know, the farming population was lauded and held up as, uh, you know, keeping the country ticking over, I suppose, certainly yes. in an economic yes. 
uh, sense. And then also from that, you got a sense of uh, buy local, um, you know, uh, eat yep. eat good food, these sorts of things as well, like, you know, uh, animal proteins, etc. Um, so there was yep. all of that. Yep. And then I felt that that would kind of, I don't know, that it was, it was riding a high for a little while. And then it maybe the equilibrium started to kick in after that. Yeah, I think the, I mean, we are, we're in such a, we're in such an interesting moment for rural New Zealand uh, as, I mean, it feels like the environmental regulations are something dramatically new that's evolving, but we, we are a real laggard in OECD terms, in terms of how we environmentally manage farm landscapes. But the other thing I think that I, that I would draw from Norway, uh, which is particularly interesting, is that because they have this, um, I mean, they're a country with similar land area and almost identical population to us, but they have a one point something trillion US dollar sovereign wealth fund funded by the oil industry. Mm. Um, and that that sovereign wealth fund funds infrastructure. So there's no there's no sense in which regional government uh, in Norway is, is currently carrying the can for stretched infrastructure. They have sensational rural infrastructure. And in New Zealand, we just the, the, the basis upon which how we fund rural infrastructure is based is based is slowly unraveling because farming is too. I mean, it's a huge industry, of course, but you know, there's less than five percent of the population and households in New Zealand are involved in farming. Yes, but they're living inside this enormous uh, land footprint in terms of maintaining roads uh, and. Well, let's just say roads and bridges to start with. Yeah. And who pays for that in the long term? Because when, when farming was enormously prosperous and regional governments had a lot of money in their coffers, you could fill the potholes in. Yeah. But, but what, what I'm starting to see at the moment in terms of the longer-term trajectory in New Zealand politics is that there's a limit to which urban voters are going to think it's OK for their money to be spending spent filling potholes and roads in Southland. Mm, interesting. Um, and so we, we have this huge infrastructural imbalance that I thought Three Waters was only just starting to starting the debate to talk about how you're going to fund that because we we have you know if you were to, if you were to map New Zealand uh, as as a planning as a regional resource planning challenge onto comparative countries around the world we have far too many roads um, and we have far too few rail lines. And we also have extremely fragile landscape. You know, our landscape moves all the time. And we're moving into a time in our history when we're going to have more flooding events. Mm. So that rural infrastructure cost is going to continue to ratchet up. And it's going to put enormous pressure. And I don't think any political party at the moment has gone there in terms of some very, not going to name parties, but, you know, some very urban-focused party. No one's picked up yet the sense of, the degree to which the infrastructure subsidy to rural New Zealand is being carried by urban voters. And I think that's a huge area of threat. It's also why I think good faith discussions over three waters are actually the sensible pathway forward for rural New Zealand. Wow, fascinating stuff. Good. To, you, geez, mm. you, 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 you spent, uh, that's a valuable nine weeks of thinking and coming no, back and, you know, yeah. uh, getting uh, comparisons and all that sort of thing. You obviously well, had a great time. What a great, but I've never been to Scandinavia. I'd love to go. Yeah, well, I've got to say that um, there was one major design. I arrived there right on the uh, cusp of Storm Hans, which was the largest rain event in Norway for 120 years. Jeez. And, and uh, that, 
to put a dent in my experience of Norway, uh, especially in the area of farm-based fishing rights and rivers. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it was all blown out. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but still, uh, yeah, uh, better to do it than not. Good stuff. Um, well, I didn't know about your connection with um, the what's the what's the university over there? Uh, Trondheim, NTNU, but there's a research centre called Ruralis. Okay. Where I'm a visiting professor. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. Well, um, it's a great insight into uh, what's going on um, in Europe at the moment, in particular um, uh, Netherlands and uh, and Norway, and uh, the yep. uh, the yep. comparisons to what we've got going on over here. Professor Hugh Campbell, always an absolute pleasure, my friend. Thanks for the insight. No, thanks, Tom. Good to talk.